It is an exciting opportunity, isn't it, to come together on the last day of the year 2006. It happens to fall on Sunday this year, even as this is the Lord's Day, and to us has been given the blessed privilege of assembling. We can, of course, as has already been mentioned, anxiously look forward to the events of the year 2007. If God shall bless us with but just a few more hours, that first day of that year will have arrived, and we can look forward to another opportunity, perhaps a whole set of them, of service to the Master. Perhaps with a brief prelude to the sermon for tonight, I would invite you, please, if at all possible, come back and be with us, because we'll study then a lesson entitled, A New Beginning. Quite often, as a new year rolls around, many will make resolutions, many will make decisions, or at least an attempt to begin their life in that year in an improved or positive way. Well, let's study this afternoon, or perhaps tonight, what the Bible has to say about new beginnings. And as we do that, we will be fortified in what you and I can do about being better people in service to the great God of heaven. For this morning... Being that this is the final day, the 31st of December, 2006, it seems as though an issue that is one that so often encompasses the mind of many and rests upon the mind of so very many who are making vital decisions discusses a subject that in fact is not at all trivial or arbitrary. It has to do with liquor. You and I live in a world, especially in our land, that's awash with it. We understand that. One can scarcely watch television without seeing commercials that tout its praises and encourage one to participate. One can hardly, in fact, drive around town without seeing trucks that deliver it. Well, maybe it would do us well to revisit the Holy Word of God and to ask, what about liquor in the Bible? Or perhaps more carefully and more specifically, can, to what extent can a Christian drink, even in moderation, alcoholic beverages? As we ask that question, again, it has always been and shall always be our desire to ask, What saith the Scripture? It doesn't matter what I think or what anyone else thinks. All that matters, of course, is what God has decreed concerning and relative to this subject. With some of those things said, might we begin the lesson then today by just noting some thoughts or some statistics that could be very thought-provoking, and then from that point onward to delve deeply into the Word of God and to let God speak to us relative to this subject and, in fact, relative to this interesting and all very powerful thing that, that seems to surround us so greatly. As we do that, please consider the following with me. Annually, each year in the United States of America, students spend about five and a half billion dollars on alcohol. That's more than they spend on soft drinks, meal, coffee, books combined. Interesting statistic, isn't it? Not only that, Americans annually spend over 90 billion dollars on alcohol. 90 billion dollars. However, as one thinks about those statistics, even though the proliferation of it is not at all surprising, perhaps those numbers are a little shocking to us, but think about some of these other, thing, other, these other thoughts. Around 50% of all driving fatalities is related to alcohol. In fact, on average, that means one death every 30 minutes on the roadway is due, at least in part, to alcohol. By the time this sermon is over, one person would have been killed on average due to that very thing. Somewhat shocking, isn't it? But notice something else. 
These statistics were taken from the website maintained by the federal government, and hence I have every confidence in the validity of them. In the year 2000, there were approximately 85,000 deaths in our land attributed to alcohol. Now that means to say that those related to the roadways as well as various diseases and other things that are too related as well to it. In that same year, about 7 million binge drinkers were aged 12 to 20. It seems to begin very young, doesn't it? We are not dealing with a subject that one can slide off as trivial and ignore it. In fact, notice something else. Forty percent of criminals admit, confess to the fact that in terms of violence, alcohol played a role in it. Two out of every five then have something to say and to do with the very character of alcohol. We mentioned a moment ago the diseases that one can attribute or at least link to it. There's those of the liver. There is cirrhosis and that in great number. There are various diseases of the esophagus and the digestive system. We could list them all in great number, but that isn't necessary for the time being, is it? We understand that as all of that is easily understood and noted, it can be traced, it seems, directly by virtue of research to a liquor, to alcohol. And yet, despite all this, the liquor industry spends what now is undoubtedly more than $2 billion a year promoting its product, encouraging the participation in it, in fact, advertising it in various ways. All the while, can we not easily and readily see that alcohol is a drug? We understand that in our land we easily see the headlines on the drug problem and our mind may be racist to marijuana or heroin or cocaine or oxycotton or any number of other more modern drugs. We ought never to be though blinded because alcohol is a drug just like all the others. It has the same characteristics. I'd encourage you, if you doubt that or would like to study more on it, to read what some of the very noted surgeons and other highly praised doctors have said. Alcohol, its main chemical is ethyl alcohol. It is in many ways the same kind of discussion as well as those other drugs. It has many of the same characteristics. It is also addictive just like the others. The fact is, as one thinks about ethyl alcohol, and its constituency in these various items that are sold, we're discussing, of course, a very broad subject. In fact, consider some of the next things that we might state. Our breweries in this land turn out tens of millions of gallons of this substance annually. In fact, if you were to then discuss this on average, that means every American, man, woman, and child, this now is on average, consumes one and a half gallons of distilled spirits. Every American man, woman, and child consumes on average 25 gallons of beer a year, and what's more, two gallons of wine as well. Now you and I can easily note that many, of course, do not participate in these at all, and hence there must be many who are participating far more than the average. Perhaps all that goes without saying. If you and I then ask, what does the Bible say about alcohol? What does it say about the participation, even socially, in these fermented beverages? Could we not then conclude that whatever God says must be the final answer, and whatever God decrees, you and I must accept fully in faith, 
appreciating the eternal character of what God has proclaimed. To say all that, though, leads us to know there really are three possibilities in terms of response. We each have noted many of them. There are many in our world who will say that total drunkenness is sinful. One must never become completely inebriated, but rather having a drink every now and then, not a problem. In fact, those who would advantage themselves of many of our restaurants that Putnam County now offers perhaps would feel that way. They easily go in and drink, and then they drive away and go to their homes and seemingly think very little of it. That's certainly one response that some choose to take, that drunkenness is wrong, but social consumption is not. There are, on the other hand, those who say, well, it really doesn't make any difference. You can drink or you can not drink. God doesn't care. And I list that as the last possibility. Some think it just doesn't matter. It's immaterial. There are, on the other hand, those who are absolutely convinced that abstinence is God's only correct and right response. That to participate in any respect socially in alcoholic beverages is condemned completely by the Word of God. You and I are then in a position of wondering which of those three is correct. We know that we cannot go to any human response and hope to get the answer. Paul affirmed it for all of us in Romans 4 verse 3 when he said, What saith the Scripture? And so over the next few moments this morning, I'd invite you to peruse with me the Word of God as we seek to find God's answer to this question. What does the Bible say about the social consumption of alcoholic beverages? Let us begin this way. As we read the 66 books of the Bible, recognizing in our attempt to rightly divide it, that many of them fall in the Old Testament and, of course, a larger or smaller subset in the New, we understand that you and I are reading that in English. It has been translated from the original words of either Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, as the case may be, and as we read that in English, we encounter words like wine and strong drink. In fact, those occur so often that it's rather easy to bypass them and to give precious little thought to them when all the while the original word we might hope would shed a great amount of light on what we hope to understand. Well, it's not as though I wish to disappoint you, but the original wording is perhaps not always that which reveals what we wish it would. In fact, the original word in either Greek or Hebrew that's translated, that word does not necessarily indicate whether it was fermented or whether it wasn't. Quite often, the very same word in Hebrew or Greek is translated wine in English. And so it could have been fermented or it might not have been. We cannot base the conclusion only upon the word. In fact, perhaps that thought has rested upon your mind. That Hebrew word, yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N, that's the most common one that's translated wine in the Old Testament. And yet, isn't it amazing that sometimes, as we'll see in a moment, you find verses that condemn the usage of that word in terms of it's a drink that God condemns. On the other hand, you find other verses where that same yayin is called a blessing from God and thus it's encouraged. Now we understand that God doesn't contradict himself. He cannot in one verse condemn something and in another one encourage it. What we conclude 
and it seems many contexts will easily back that up, is that the same word yayin sometimes is used in description of those beverages that are non-alcoholic, and other times it's used in description of those beverages which are alcoholic. One of them is a blessing, and one of them is not. But more perhaps to be said about that in a moment. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word is oinos. That's the Greek word O-I-N-O-S. It's translated wine every time. As that word oinos is thus discussed, sometimes it has reference to things that are alcoholic. Other times it has reference to those that are not. And thus we can't just read the Bible and when we read the word wine automatically conclude that this is intoxicating and thus it is condemned. Sometimes the word seems to refer to what we would call grape juice. It's freshly squeezed out of the cluster. Isaiah called it that in Isaiah 65. Furthermore, we read back in Genesis chapters 40 and 41 and 42 that this Yayin, the very thing that was squeezed by the butler out into the cup of Pharaoh, it was called wine. Well, clearly, if it was freshly squeezed, it could not have been fermented. Perhaps all that leads us to say, our discussion and our ultimate conclusion with respect to the usage of a word must include the context. We cannot divorce the word itself from the context in which it appears. As we then seek to discuss these various words and the context in which they do appear, let's begin by looking at a few of the contexts and some of the texts as well. In Leviticus 10, verse number 9, God expressly forbids the priests of the Old Testament era from participating in either wine or strong drink. Both of them were absolutely outlawed for those men, those priests who were to be servants to God. That same discussion is presented later in Ezekiel 44. All the while, we notice then that God's decree concerning it for those individuals is very specific. Consider also Isaiah. For in this book, we reach many years later the recognition that ancient Israel had come to the point where God often addresses this subject. I've listed just a few of them on the wall to my left. In Isaiah 5, verses 11 and 22, we read there where God expressly rebukes Israel because they participated in overmuch or the recognition thereof of strong drink and wine. That being said, we quickly understand in chapter 28, verses 7 and 8, that there's no question what was being discussed there. God strongly condemned Israel, and he even described some of what he saw if you were to describe a person totally drunken, what kind of description would in fact come to mind? We may well think of an individual who can't even walk straight, he can't think straight, he can't seemingly rationally do anything, and what's more, his digestive system recoils at the thought of the liquid he's poured within him. And as a consequence, he vomits it all over the place and makes it just a putrefying scene. That's what you read in Isaiah 28, verses 7 and 8. It is such that we easily can see God's disapproval of that degree of behavior. But what's more, in Isaiah 56, verse 12, those who participate, those who allow wine to control them, are called ignorant sluggards. 
That's the last verse of that chapter. And the thought all the while challenges us that God wished his people to forsake this apparently kind of lifestyle and to to devote their attention to the beauties and wonders of the kind of high living he desired for them. All the while, in Habakkuk 2 verse 15, this is still later in the Old Testament era, Here the Chaldean nation rested as those that would be the hand and the instrument of God to punish Israel for their wickedness. And in that description, God said, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. A woe was pronounced upon those who would have the audacity to give his neighbor drink that would ultimately lead to him being drunken. So we have no question what was under discussion there, and God pronounced a woe upon it. As these things rest in our mind, we might notice that many in the Old Testament did choose to drink, just like many in our world today choose to do the same. Even Noah did, didn't he, in Genesis 9. When he come off the ark, he offered that sacrifice, and we are told that he, in fact, took of the grapes or the fruit of the vineyard, and he became drunken as he allowed that to ferment, to participate in it. But we might well observe, just because Noah partook of it, does that mean God approved it? Many people in the Bible did things, and God was not happy with it. We noted that Cain did that this morning. We observe many times, what about David's committing of adultery with Bathsheba, though David was called the sweet singer of Israel, and though he was called a man after God's own heart earlier in his life, was God pleased when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? Was God pleased when he murdered her husband? Well, clearly he wasn't, for God later said, the sword, David, will never depart from your house. Second Samuel 12, verses 7 and following. The Bible is a book of truth. It tells the truth of what David and Noah and Abraham did. And when what they did was right, God made note of that as good examples for us. But when what they did was wrong, that doesn't mean that you and I can participate in it and hopefully think that God will agree to it. What about the text in Proverbs 20, verse 1? It may be that this is the strongest of all the Old Testament texts concerning this subject. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I have noted on the screen again the wording and what some of those words mean in that verse. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. The word mocker means abomination in the Hebrew. Wine is an abomination. That means God hates it. It is something that in fact is not pleasing in his sight. It is something that is to be rejected and abhorred. In addition, wine is a brawler. That word raging could also well mean the word brawler, and that simply means to growl like an angry dog. We do not have a very pleasant description of alcoholic beverage here, do we? Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. To think of it from that perspective perhaps begs the question of what about the New Testament? So far, our biblical discussion has all been in the Old Testament, but we are not under that law any longer. What about the New Testament era? Does the New Testament say anything about it? And if it does, what does it say? I would encourage you to notice some of the things that we can well observe And even at the outset, let me make mention of a verse that probably has raced to your mind already. 
We remember the very first miracle that Jesus performed. As recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Jesus attended a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, and on that occasion, he turned water into wine. And almost invariably, if you enter into discussion with someone who doesn't so feel the same about this subject, they will at first mention, well, Jesus made wine. And thus, being alcoholic, if he did that, why can't I drink it? But there are two questions that must be asked. Are you sure that the wine he made was alcoholic? Verse number 9 indicates that it wasn't. And second, what about the word that is appearing in the word drunk in that verse? You and I today notice that any time we say he is drunk, we all know what that means. Did the word drunk, when it was used 2,000 years ago in Greek, mean the same as it does today? When it's used later in 1 Corinthians 11, it obviously didn't mean that. So perhaps on those two occasions, we can rarely agree, the Son of God would never have made 150 gallons of absolute alcoholic beverage and made, and made drunken individuals at that service out of it. But the text says that's how much he made. Maybe we should then agree that there's more to that subject than what may appear there. What else does the New Testament say? In 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 5, notice verses 6 and 8. There's a command given in that text to you and me. The command is you must be sober. It's an absolute and direct command. You and I, as we appreciate the forcefulness of commands as they're given in the Scriptures, are such that we must not take them lightly. And there on that occasion, when the command is given for us to be sober, what does that word mean? Again, we perhaps easily can think, well, today sober means, well, he's not drunken. What did it mean in that language? When Peter and Paul and the others wrote by inspiration that word, what did it mean? Notice that I have written there for you. One of its principal meanings was the opposite or absence of intoxication. That's a pretty strong conclusion, isn't it? Those Thessalonian brethren were commanded, you do not be intoxicated. And notice he didn't say the degree. One beer leads to a degree of intoxication. And hence, apparently, Peter and Paul and the others are absolutely forbidding or commanding against the taking in of, the participation in, these alcoholic beverages. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13, again, an even stronger command, you be sober. And it's the same word in Greek. As one ponders or at least thinks about those words, notice 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22. Last chapter again in that Thessalonian letter, the first letter to them, the command is there given to abstain from all, from every appearance of evil. Jesus did say back in Matthew 7 that by their fruit ye shall know them. Now, though the Lord on that occasion was speaking of false versus true teachers, the premise is laid very firmly throughout the New Testament. God is not mocked. Do we not read in Galatians 6? For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In a moment, we'll notice the latter part of that again, but note the first part. Sowing to the flesh... Those who do so and the terrible ruin that they shall receive. 
Well, think about then what it does mean. We've seen earlier about the diseases. And we've seen earlier about the fatalities and the evil that seems to accompany alcoholic beverages. Violence, various types of improper behavior, immodesty, whatever the case may be that seems to naturally go along with it. In fact, on our college campuses, the plight of alcoholism is rampant. I'm sure you know that. We can't believe it's not at Tennessee Tech. We know that it is. In fact, we know it earlier that from the ages of 12 to 20, that seems to be a prone time in life when peer pressure perhaps encourages the pursuit of alcoholic beverages. It's at Lindsay Wilson College where I teach. And in fact, the latest statistics that I have read presented is in fact a frightening and staggering problem. Talk at some point if you have opportunity to some of the public safety officers at Tech or at some other school and listen to how, let, let them tell you about how they confiscate kegs and packs of beer and have to pour it out and destroy it. It's a rampant problem. And yet as we think about all of that, listen again, abstain from every appearance of evil. Is there any appearance of evil in alcohol? Could there be the sense of that which is bad or negative? And the answer must clearly be in the affirmative to that. Maybe another text to consider, 1 Peter 4, verse 3. I would ask that you read this one with me because it's one that's so easy for you and me to overlook. It's nestled near the end of the New Testament. And Peter, by inspiration, lists several things that should catch our attention. As he was discussing various difficulties and sins of the Gentile nations and of those which even God's people could in days past have been guilty of, he says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And let's stop at that point. He has listed some five items, and the first two are not of our interest, at least for this point in our lesson today. But first of all, he mentions excess of wine, and then revelings, and then banquetings. I would probably surmise, if you're like me, that those latter two words are not words that commonly roll off the tongue. What does it mean to talk about revelings? And what does it mean to discuss banquetings? We must return to the meaning of the Greek. That would, by way of definition, help us appreciate what Peter was here condemning and what through him God was condemning. On that screen again to my left, excess of wine means to bubble over with wine. We can readily agree that that apparently relates to Drunkenness, total drunkenness, a person has excess of wine intaken within him or her. Perhaps that's the easiest of the three. We can notice that it is here condemned in the sense that it is not spoken of positively. Peter said in time past this lasciviousness was upon us. But now he says, what's next? In addition to lasciviousness, this excess of wine example, next is revelings. What does that word mean? The word revelings, as you'll note with me, means feasts and drinking parties, and apparently the association is that of carousing. Feasts with drinking parties. 
we began to notice that offhand, that doesn't, at least in our modern day, sound so bad. And yet God condemned it. It's mentioned in the same way as lasciviousness, same way as excess of wine. But notice yet the last one, and this one perhaps is the most shocking of all. What are banquetings? The word banqueting simply means drinking. In the Greek, that's all it means. Drinking, and hence perhaps a drinking party. Here we have the express condemnation of the God of heaven on excess of wine, revelings, and banquetings. Or to say that another way, total drunkenness, moderation, and drinking. It would seem that the New Testament, perhaps unlike what many in our world choose to believe, is not silent on this subject. But rather, and the language appears very strong, doesn't it? And asks you and me as Christians to ever remember that God calls us then to recognize the error, the sinfulness of participating socially in alcoholic beverages. These lists in the book of Peter, perhaps the other text that we have not yet mentioned is the one that was read in our hearing for the lesson text of today. Go back with me to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. As we listen to the Apostle Paul now discussing this, verse number 18 is a very brief verse. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. As you and I read that, let us ponder and think just a bit about the context. Paul was addressing the brethren, the church in Ephesus. And as he did so to that congregation, he first of all mentioned in the early part of that chapter various unclean types of living that one could be involved in. He condemned them all in verse 3 and said a Christian should have no part in any of it. And then in verse 11, as he summarizes that, he says, Christians are rather to be called to walk in light not in darkness. So far the chapter seems to present a list of opposites. There's unclean and there's clean, and there's light and there's dark. In those middle verses then that lead to verse 18, he has now broached the subject even to some extent of worship as well as daily Christian living. And again in verse 18, or let me begin in verse 17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, the question is, what does drunk mean? We are not to be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. There seems to be a contrast again drawn. The word drunk, coming from Methusco, if you will perhaps look at or discuss one of the lexicons and ask what that word means, it means to begin to be softened. Let me repeat that, to begin to be softened. It would appear from this text as well as the one in First Peter that participating in taking alcoholic beverages socially is condemned first drink to last. There is no room for the Christian to participate in these things. We can note then that of those three possibilities that we had drawn earlier, being immaterial, total abstinence, or moderation, two of the three are condemned. God's plan is for total abstinence with respect to these, to, to these things. 
as you note those things with me, would it not be fair then to conclude? That is to say, to summarize some of the things that we have learned and seen today. Beverage alcohol is rampant in our land. None of us need to be reminded of that. And as we have studied it, and as we have looked at it, we've also noted that in many regards, many will claim that it brings happiness and joy and a light feeling to their heart. When all the while, you and I know that it brings hurtfulness. All of those bad and negative things that we've just studied seem to be linked directly to it. Furthermore, we have noted that it has the same characteristics as any other drug. And thus, may I submit that if one defends alcohol, you're also defending cocaine, marijuana, heroin, oxycotton, you name it. To defend one is to defend any of them. We have noted the Bible, and many other texts could be noted, that encourage us in every regard to not in any sense reduce or distract ourselves from being completely of mind, body, and strength in service to God. To say all of that then leads us to say this, that drunkenness is absolutely condemned. That part we know. Galatians 5 verse 21 states that of those that will not enter heaven, the drunkard is one of them. But we've also learned today that even moderate drinking is also condemned. That's those banquetings and revelings we learned. That's the statement in Ephesians 5.18 about Methusco. You see, you and I aren't to begin to be softened. We aren't to even begin to allow ourselves to be drawn aside from our service to God with complete and rational and logic approach and thought of mind. As we've studied these things today, they challenge us to ever remember that you and I are called to be lights in a world that's often filled with darkness. In Matthew 5, verse 16, perhaps one of the last texts we'll use today, Jesus did say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Do you and I bring glory to God if we are participating in drinking beer and wine and wine coolers and spirits? We do not. For God and His Word has condemned those things. Rather, we need to direct our life socially into the pursuit of other matters that He has approved, and those that He has highly commended, and those for which He's given His respect. Today, as we then think about our life on the last day of this year and look forward to a year of service in the next, may we be dedicated and devoted to always lift high the banner of Jesus, to walk beneath the crystal clear and pristine beauty of the glorious Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. He indeed is our captain that leads us to salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 10. Today, are you a Christian? Are you one who has devoted and given your life to the service of Jesus? If you have not, then Christ demands this of you. You must believe in Him. You've heard His Word today, and thus you know about Him. Believe Him to be true. Believe His Word to be absolutely accurate. Repent of the sins in your life. We notice that was commanded on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38. But not only that, confess Him as that eunuch did in Acts 8.37, and be buried with Him in baptism in order to have your sins forgiven and remitted. If you've done that, but you need to come back to your first love today, hesitate no longer. Let today be the day. What better way to begin a new year? As we then lift high the banner of Jesus and help others to see the error of alcohol and its participation in a social way, we can be bright lights for the Savior and bright lights for God. 
Today, if we could help anyone in your public obedience to the gospel, let us do that. Even now, while together we stand and while we sing.